Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. As I watch my producer lip sync my intro with me, I guess that's a comment about how predictable I've become. Eh, it doesn't matter. We're talking about Amiga. We're wrapping up the discussion on Amiga. Uh, we're going to be cramming a whole lot of history in this episode because we focused a lot on the politics that surrounded the launch of the Amiga 1000 and then the Amiga 500 and 2000. By the time the Amiga 500 and 2000 had debuted in 1987, the story of Amiga had changed considerably. The original people who had led the design of that first computer, that Amiga 1000, were pretty much out of the picture. There were still a few Amiga engineers and developers who were around and were working at Commodore, but they had been more or less incorporated into Commodore's larger structure. The Amiga 500 debuted at a pretty attractive price. It was sold for the princely sum of $699. If we use an inflation calculator to figure out how much that would be in today's money, that would be close to about $1,570. The Atari ST had debuted at $100 more but it also came with a monitor, and that was for the monochromatic version. If you wanted the color monitor version, it was $300 more than the Amiga 500. But again, if you bought an Amiga 500, you had to also get a monitor. Though you could also use a television if you really wanted to. Unlike the Amiga 1000, which Commodore had only sold in computer stores, the Amiga 500 actually found its way onto retail shelves like in Sears. The lower cost and the superior performance in graphics and audio and the wider availability made it a popular gaming platform, particularly over in Europe. It did okay in the United States. It always did better in Europe than it did in the U.S. Developers like Bill Williams would create games that could leverage the specialized chipset in the Amiga 500 to accomplish stuff that left the Macintosh and the IBM-compatible machines of that era in the dust. It was around this time that I first got a chance to play stuff on an Amiga. I was immediately floored with how advanced gaming was on those machines compared to the Apple II that I had at home or even the IBM 286 that my father was using to write books. And whenever he wasn't writing, I was playing games on it. It was like night and day when you compared the Amiga to other computers at that time. I could not understand why the Amiga was not the dominant computer in the consumer market. But to be fair, I was also 12 years old, so my capacity for understanding the complexities of corporate maneuvers was even less developed than it is now, and that's saying something. But I was incredibly impressed. Some games, like Williams's title Mindwalker, would allow the user to run other applications in the background, so you could actually take advantage of the Amiga's multitasking capabilities. But soon, among game developers, it became common practice to create software that would tap directly into Amiga's hardware, bypassing the operating system and locking the computer into a single task, just playing a really awesome game. It was a justifiable trade-off, and I'm pretty sure most gamers didn't really care. Other games, like Defender of the Crown, showcased the Amiga's ability to present high-resolution, colorful images. Defender of the Crown was a strategy game in which you would lead armies in a contest for the Crown of England. 
That game launched as an Amiga exclusive, but later ports of the game made their way onto lots of other platforms, including the IBM PC and even the Nintendo Entertainment System. There were lots of other games coming out for the Amiga 500. The computer system gave developers the chance to make really creative choices without being restrained by the hardware limitations that were everywhere else. So you had games like Shadow of the Beast, which included the ability to incorporate up to 12 layers of parallax scrolling. And you might wonder, what the heck does that mean? Well, parallax scrolling is when you can create different speeds of scrolling for different layers of an image on a screen. It gives you the overall impression of movement. So a lot of side-scrolling games would use this to create a more compelling experience. It's kind of an old trick. You have stuff that's in the foreground, so close to the viewer, moving at a faster speed than stuff that's in the background. And it gives you the sense that the stuff that's in the background actually is further away. That's why moving past it takes longer. And uh, the, uh, the, the Shadow of the Beast could actually have up to 12 layers of this. That's pretty much unheard of during that time. The popular game series Lemmings also debuted on Amiga. Gosh, I love that game. This was one of the games that my friend had, Lemmings. Uh, that game, in case you're not familiar, was one where you have a group of critters lemmings, little green-haired creatures, that uh, it was your job to move them from one part of a level to the exit of that level. And you did this by giving different lemmings various jobs, like they might have to dig through earth to get to the end part, or they might have to parachute to get down to another level and build a platform back up so that the other lemmings can get down. And if you lost too many lemmings, because they were very fragile, then you would fail the level. And I just, I can still remember the sound they would make when you would tell them to self-destruct. They'd do a little oh no and then pop out of existence with confetti. But while games were starting to take off for the Amiga 500, the system did not become a mega hit in the US. A different product would really show off how powerful the Amiga platform was, and it would ultimately become a combination of an expansion card and some software and it was called the Video Toaster, and this was for the Amiga 2000. And here's where the story of Amiga's past really would come into play. The original intent for the Amiga, back when it was first in the design phase, before any hardware had been built, was that it was going to primarily be a video game system. And as part of that, from the beginning, it was made to be compatible with television frequencies, meaning you could hook it directly up to a TV. Other computers were reliant on computer monitors, and you had syncing issues if you wanted to send a signal out from a computer to a television. Often the frequencies didn't match up. The Genlock in the Amiga 2000 would let a user overlay graphics on top of a video signal in either NTSC or PAL formats. A guy named Tim Jensen, who was an electrical mechanical engineer, would take advantage of this capability. He had already created a program called DigiView that would allow him to take a snapshot of a video. So he could run a video on his Amiga, use this program, and capture a single frame and save that to an Amiga floppy disk. He saved some images to a disk, which also happened to have his contact information stored on that disk, and he shared it with a guy named Jeff Bruett, who worked for Commodore. Soon, his work was being spread around, and because his information was still on that disk, he started getting contacted by people who wanted to explore the possibilities of using the Amiga to work with video in a more robust way. 
Jennison founded a company called NewTech. His programs DigiView and DigiPaint were both big hits. And then a guy named Paul Montgomery, who really wanted to develop a tool that would allow for video manipulation and editing, joined NewTech. And he came up to Jennison and he said, what if we made a program that would let you do stuff like squish a video image or even flip it? So now you're looking at the mirror image of that video. What would it take to do that? And Jennison's initial response was, you would take $100,000. I mean, you're talking about the, the capabilities that a video editing studio running hardware that's $25,000 easy plus software that's way more expensive than that. Like, it, it's just, it's, it's financially impossible. But Jennison became obsessed with this idea. Like, maybe, maybe I could figure out a way to do this using an Amiga. You know, do the same thing that these specific purpose workstations do, but I can do it with a general purpose computer like the Amiga. So he started thinking about this. And Montgomery, Jennison, and a guy named Brad Carvey, who, trivia here, is the brother of comedian Dana Carvey, got together and started working out what it would take to allow an Amiga to manipulate video this way. They created a hardware design that would interface through an expansion slot on the Amiga, and they created some software to give them some early primitive capabilities. They built out a prototype of this concept, and in November 1987, they showed off their idea at the Comdex computer trade show. The demonstration was a huge hit, and the team continued to work on their idea with the goal of creating an expansion card and software kit that would be able to handle all the tasks that you would find in a network video editing bay. And it would take uh, three years total and 350,000 lines of code, much of which was written in the assembly language of the Motorola 68000 chip that powered the Amiga. When the product finally came out in 1990, it cost just under $2,400. But if you bought Video Toaster, you would get an expansion card, you would get a collection of eight floppy disks holding a set of programs, and you would suddenly have the power to do video editing, like a full system. Um, but here's the thing is that even if you bought a brand new Amiga 2000 and a copy of Video Toaster, that would set you back less than $5,000. That was a fraction of what it would cost if you wanted a professional system, and yet you would have all the capabilities of a professional system. This turned the Amiga 2000 into the go-to computer system if you were working in video. These days, the Mac platform is frequently favored by people who edit video or audio, including people here at How Stuff Works. The Mac isn't quite as dominant in that position as it used to be, thanks to some advances in PC software suites over the last several years, not to mention some decisions that Apple has made with some of its editing software that has, let's say, cheesed off some longtime editors. But, you know, for the longest time, you'd say the Mac was the dominant video and audio editing platform. Well, in the 90s, it was the Amiga 2000. I've got more to say, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The Amiga and Video Toaster had an immediate effect on the appearance of video because producers now had access to video effects that would have previously cost them tens of thousands of dollars to use, which led to 
a saturation of certain video effects. You started to see them everywhere to the point where they became cliched and a joke. So today, if you were to see a star wipe in a video, you would probably hear a lot of people chuckling, especially anyone who had worked in video editing. That is a very dated kind of look. It's cheesy. But that's largely because that effect got so much use in the 1990s because the Amiga and Video Toaster made it so accessible. Meanwhile, back in the executive offices over at Commodore, Chief Executive Irving Gould would hire Max Toy to become the president and chief operating officer of the company in the fall of 1987. Toy would say that no contract would be necessary to guarantee his loyalty. That was obviously a dig at at Radigan, the former CEO of Commodore who had been uh, fired by Irving Gould earlier that year. And he said that, the day he would require a contract would be the last day he would ever work at Commodore. And I guess that day must have happened two years later because that's when he got fired. He got the boot, and Commodore then hired a guy named Harold Copperman from IBM. And uh, also he had worked at Apple. And now he was there to lead the United States division of Commodore. So why was Max Toy dismissed? Well, for one thing, Irving Gould was still extremely impatient, and he still wanted results super fast. Some people would say unreasonably fast. And for another, Toy was apparently on the losing side of an internal disagreement within Commodore, one that would actually revolve around the Amiga. So the disagreement kind of split the company into two big camps. In one camp were the engineers and developers who wanted to continue to develop the Amiga platform. They saw potential in building out a powerful machine that could outpace all competitors in the consumer market, specifically when it came to graphics and audio. That camp felt the reason that Commodore continued to struggle as a company was not due to the quality of its products so much, but more in how those products were being marketed and sold. They were sure that the Amiga approach would win out if it was just given the proper chance and promotion. The other camp, in which Toy was entrenched, was that... Commodore should just abandon the Amiga platform and instead concentrate on producing IBM-compatible machines. This was the era of the IBM clone. IBM had used off-the-shelf components to build its personal computers, so that meant that you could buy those same off-the-shelf components and build your same machines, very similar to IBM. More importantly, IBM had failed to secure an exclusive license from Microsoft for MS-DOS. So you could then license MS-DOS from Microsoft yourself and sell your own cheaper version of IBM computers to customers. This would technically have been easier for Commodore to do than to uh, create new architecture based off the Amiga architecture. But critics of that plan said, yeah, it's easier, but the profit margins are also much lower. Commodore would have to pit its IBM clones against all the other IBM clones that were flooding the market. And ultimately, this side lost. And so did Max Toy. Harold Copperman would come on board. Copperman's appointment was met with some trepidation from outside the company. I read an article that was very skeptical about the whole situation because at this point, the company had a reputation now for having a revolving door when it came to chief executives. Because you had Jack Tramiel, you had Thomas Radigan, you had Max Toy, and now Harold Copperman, all filling that role since 1984, and now it's 1989. 
1989 had seemed to start off well for Amiga. Commodore had announced in January 1989 that one million Amiga computers had been sold up to that point. Also, one other executive took a position at the top of Commodore in early 1989. That would be Mehdi Ali. That was the man who had come on board of, uh, with Commodore as a consultant. He had been an advisor to Irving Gould, and he was the one who told Gould to fire former CEO Radigan just a few years earlier. Well, now Ali was able to convince Gould to hire Ali on as the president of Commodore International, which was largely a vacant position for most of Commodore's existence, but now Mayday Ali would inhabit it. Copperman would be president and CEO of Commodore's U.S. operations. In November 1989, Commodore announced the Amiga 2500. This was essentially an Amiga 2000 with a new pair of coprocessors, so just a modest uh, improvement over the Amiga 2000. In 1990, Commodore would offer Amiga 1000 owners a $1,000 trade-in deal if they would upgrade to an Amiga 2000 machine. This is also when the video toaster product became official and you could actually go out and buy it. The company would then announce the Amiga 3000. This was a slightly bigger upgrade than the 2500, still a modest one. Uh, it had a new CPU. It also had a new chipset. And a brand new Amiga 3000 with a monitor would set you back $4,100, truly a princely sum. Commodore would hold a swanky presentation to show off the 3000, Kind of reminds me of the initial Amiga launch that came out back in 1985. Copperman gave the presentation that night, and the focus was on multimedia applications, something the Amiga was particularly well-suited for. In 1991, there were more changes in executive leadership. Copperman resigned. Perhaps he was blamed for the moderate performance of the Amiga 3000. It never really took off in sales. And it turned out that only the hardcore Amiga fans were buying those computers. Other people were happy to stick with the Amiga 500 or the Amiga 2000. James Dion would be named general manager of U.S. sales slash head of the United States part of Commodore. At this point, it gets real tricky to talk about titles because they seem to be somewhat nebulous at the executive level at Commodore. There were also some pretty dark jokes going around at Commodore at this point because they'd seen so many leaders go in and out of that position. So the joke was, if you were named the head of Commodore US, you would move into your executive office and on your desk, there'd be three envelopes that say, open in case of financial emergency. And they'd be labeled one, two, and three. So the first time you hit a rough patch, you open envelope number one. And inside there's a message that says, blame your predecessor. So you would lay all the blame of all the problems on the guy who was in that position before you. The second time you encounter a rough financial patch, you open up envelope two, and that one says, blame your vice presidents. So then you go blaming all the people who work underneath you. The third time you hit a financial rough patch, you open envelope three, and a message inside says, prepare three envelopes. It seemed like working for Gould was tough, and it probably didn't help that Irving Gould was frequently changing his base of operations. He was moving around a lot. And I saw at least one guy say that he suspected the reason Irving Gould would pick up stakes and move to a different place and then force shareholder meetings to take place wherever he happened to be at the time was so that he could take advantage of the most favorable tax policies at any given time. 
So essentially sheltering himself from having to pay too much tax. That was the allegation. I have no idea if it's true, but he certainly did pop around a lot. In 1992, Commodore introduced three new computers in the Amiga line. You had the Amiga 600, which was a low-cost machine that had a base price of $500 and actually had fewer features than the Amiga 500. So very confusing. Higher number, fewer features. And the initial cost at that point, the Amiga 500 was actually cheaper than the Amiga 600 uh, when the 600 launched because the 500 had been out for a couple of years. Not many people wanted to get an Amiga 600. There was very little reason to. Why would you want a computer that was less powerful than an older machine that was actually less expensive at that point? The company started producing more Amiga 600s than it was producing Amiga 500s. Technically, both were still in production, but they began to scale back on the 500s. That actually led to losses because, again, people didn't want the 600s. Later, the Amiga 4000 would debut. It had a more powerful processor and it had a boosted chipset. The chips had names like Super Gary, Super Ramsey, and Super Amber. And there was also Alice, Lisa, and good old Paula. And at the end of 1992, the Amiga 1200 came out. The 1200 would be a pretty successful machine, but the company was making more Amiga 600s than 500s or 1200s. So the computers that people wanted were being made in fewer quantities than the computers nobody wanted. By 1992, Amiga sales were on the rise with a 17% over 1991 figures, and it looked like it could be a turning point for Commodore. And I guess it kind of was, except it wasn't a good turning point. In 1993, James Dion would resign as the head of U.S. operations. So once again, that place was vacant. So now we have Tramiel, Radigan, Toy, Copperman, and Dion as the various heads of Commodore in the United States since 1984. Mehdi Ali and Irving Gould were still at the tippy top. Gould was still the director. Mehdi Ali was still the head of Commodore International. During all of this, the engineers and developers who were down at the base level were, were still doing their best to make the Amiga platform as good as they could possibly make it with the resources that they had available to them. But those resources were getting cut back year over year. It was getting increasingly difficult to do. Commodore also had a reputation for not treating their engineers and programmers very well. They were underpaid compared to others in their industry, although, just to be totally fair, most of their competing companies were based in California, and that's a more expensive place to live than Pennsylvania. So some of that was cost of living, but they were still underpaid compared to their peers. In 1993, Commodore would post a loss of $366 million. Sales dropped by 20%. In 1994, after the first quarter of the fiscal year, Commodore posted another loss. This time it was $8.2 million, which was technically an improvement from the previous year, but still a loss. And then Commodore sent out a warning message to investors, saying that the company might have to prepare for bankruptcy proceedings, and the stock price took a nosedive. It all came to a head on April 29th, 1994. That's when Commodore International Limited stated it would begin liquidating all assets and would file for bankruptcy protection. Commodore, including Amiga, was at the beginning of the end. But not quite the end. Amiga would limp on, sort of. 
I'll explain more in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, these episodes are supposed to be about Amiga, not Commodore. But to understand why Amiga never managed to establish itself as a viable alternative to the Macintosh or the IBM PC clone here in the United States requires a lot of talk about Commodore because the problems were largely based in corporate politics. Again, not the technology of the Amiga, which was pretty darn cool, but because of managers and executives and the shuffling that was going on constantly at Commodore. Irving Gould, the investor who had been pulling the strings at Commodore ever since he convinced the board to kick founder Jack Tramiel to the curb, is often blamed for Commodore's ultimate failure. Now, he didn't take a hands-on approach to managing the day-to-day operations of the company. He had no interest in doing that. But at the same time, he wanted dramatic and rapid returns on his investment. And when he didn't see results that were fast enough for him, he would come in and change leadership. Those leaders would often make changes themselves. Sometimes that helps establish their new role at a company. You probably have experienced something like this at the point. You you might have gotten a new boss sometime or seen a new boss come in and make seemingly unnecessary changes to a, a way a company or a division does things. Sometimes that's to make a mark on a business to say, well, this way I can set myself apart from my predecessor. Often it means disrupting things, uh, sometimes just so that you can establish yourself and meanwhile the company starts to fall behind. Well, that happened a lot at Commodore because Gould kept replacing the head of U.S. operations and he would get impatient when he wasn't seeing good results and he would do it all over again and that would just keep things going in a state of chaos over at the corporate level. In addition, Commodore owed debts to many companies, and several of those companies happened to be owned by Irving Gould himself. So back when Jack Tramiel was still with Commodore, the founder of Commodore, when he was the head, he argued that Commodore should issue more shares of stock at one point. What he wanted to do was issue shares of stock to raise more money to pay off some of Commodore's debts. So essentially he was saying, let's increase the percentage of ownership out there on the market. Irving Gould said, no, that's dumb. But he was doing that for two very selfish reasons. One was Irving Gould was a majority shareholder in Commodore. So if you put more stocks out there on the market, offering up more ownership of Commodore, that means that Gould's percentage would get smaller because now there's more of the ownership out there on the market. And unless Gould was to buy up those shares, it would mean he would have less leverage over the company. Secondly, he didn't want those debts paid off because it gave him leverage over the company. So he would shoot down this idea of issuing more shares of stock. Then you had Mehdi Ali, the consultant who was picked by Gould to serve as the head of Commodore International. He also played a really large role in Commodore's failure, according to many people who worked for Commodore. One of Ali's big moves as leader was to increase his own salary and that of Irving Gould's as well. The two would make an awful lot of money. They were making more money than pretty much every other CEO in the computer industry. So that money had to come from somewhere. One source was Commodore's research and development departments. Ali would gut the funding for that over the years, cutting back research and development year over year. 
but he also torpedoed what could have been a lucrative licensing deal. There was a, a, a point where Sun Microsystems wanted to license Amiga technology and use them in their workstations. But Ali said, oh, sure, we'll let you do that. But he set an unrealistic fee, a ridiculously high licensing fee. And Sun Microsystems said, pound sand, we're going to go somewhere else. And they left. In 1994, when the com- company would actually fall apart, there was a new chipset that was actually in development at that time. It was called the Advanced Amiga Architecture, or AAA, AAA. It was the most dramatic overhaul of the original Amiga chipset to date. The previous chips that had been tweaked in the past had all been what they called enhanced versions of the earlier architecture that Jay Miner and his team had developed in the 1980s. But while this project was in development, Mehdi Ali kept cutting the department's funding. So by the time Commodore was declaring bankruptcy, there was only one engineer left working on that project. And as you can imagine, Having a project to redesign the architecture of chips fall on one person's shoulders means that it's never going to get done. There's just only so much work one person can do. Meanwhile, PC graphics were starting to catch up to Amiga's position. The VGA graphics standard allowed PC manufacturers to incorporate hardware that was capable of running fast action games at a pretty low resolution, 320 by 200 pixels with 256 colors. And I know that sounds like nothing compared to today's graphics. And it really isn't anything compared to today's graphics. But back then, it was a big deal. Just trust me on this. Now, Amiga, however, could display up to 4,096 colors if it was running in ham mode. But that mode could not respond rapidly to changes. So while it could show more colors than PCs, it couldn't do it in these applications like a fast action game. It was fine for slower moving games, but the fast action, the computer just couldn't keep up with it. So you wouldn't be able to play a game like Doom with 4,096 colors on an Amiga. You would have to have something to make the Amiga run faster. So it could not do the same thing that the IBM PC could do um, without running at a severe disadvantage where it's displaying like 32 colors on the screen instead of 256. So it was just starting to fall behind. And Commodore wasn't giving the assets to developers to counteract that. When Commodore was going out of business, there were still engineers hoping to create the next generation of Amiga computers. There was the Ombre project. That was meant to incorporate a 3D graphics accelerator card with a powerful processor to make the Amiga top in the realm again when it came to graphics. But the project lacked the funding it needed to make any progress and ultimately fell apart. Following bankruptcy was a long process to figure out how to auction off Commodore's U.S. assets. This was more complicated than most companies, largely because Commodore's structure was particularly tricky. I've seen some people suggest that this was by design so that it would provide Irving Gould the equivalent of a tax shelter. I do not know if that's the truth. What I know is that it took a long time to sort everything out so that the auction could actually happen. Things were different in Europe, by the way. Commodore UK had managed to stay profitable while the U.S. branch was flailing around. So Commodore UK was still fine. And so if you lived in the UK, you could still go out and buy Amiga computers from Commodore while the U.S. side was fading away. 
The head of UK operations was a guy named David Pleasance, and he had a grand plan. He wanted to purchase the assets of all of Commodore at auction, including Amiga. So he went to some investors and raised some money, and he reached out to a company in China called New Star Electronics. And his goal was to continue Commodore operations, not just own the assets, but keep building Commodore machines and even develop new computer systems based on that architecture so the Amiga could potentially have a future. There were a few other contenders that also were vying to purchase Commodore's assets. One was Dell Computer, but its bid actually was too late for consideration. Uh, Another was a company called ESCOM, which made PCs in Europe. ESCOM's bid was lower than the one that Pleasance's group had made. But then, just a couple of days before the auction was to actually take place, the Chinese company New Star would back out of the deal, and Pleasance was forced to cancel his bid, and so ESCOM would end up getting possession of Commodore brand and all of its assets in the U.S. ESCOM's leader was a guy named Manfred Schmidt, who had split Commodore's assets and create two companies. One of those two companies was Amiga Technologies, He put a guy named Petro Tichinko, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name. It has got way too many letters in it for an ignorant American such as myself to say properly. So I'm just going to call him Petro. Uh, The Amiga would continue on in Europe for a little while longer, but there were no manufacturing facilities left after the collapse of Commodore. So there was no place to make new computers. They could sell the ones that were in inventory, but they couldn't really make more of them. Work was being done to bring new facilities online, but for the most part, the company was existing off-selling the Amiga 1200. They did do some tweaks to the 1200 to try and remain relevant because the system was quickly aging out. It was a few years old, so they had to keep making minor changes to it, but they couldn't just make something new yet. In 1996, ESCOM, the parent company of Amiga Technologies, followed in the footsteps of Commodore, falling prey to what some people called the Commodore curse, and it too declared bankruptcy. The company had expanded too quickly, it had overextended its reach, and the Amiga assets again went to auction. This time, the company Gateway 2000, later known just as Gateway, would win the intellectual property and Amiga brand in 1997. And the new philosophy would require a huge change in direction for Amiga. The idea was that Gateway was going to create a line of Amiga products ranging from tablets to workstations to set-top boxes. All of them would run on the same operating system. This would require new architecture and new software, and so it would not be based off the old Amiga design, but it was meant to follow a philosophy similar to the one that Amiga embodied. Sadly, apart from some prototypes, This never really got off the ground. Management changed at Gateway, and the project was ultimately scuttled as the company moved to sell off Amiga to someone else. This time, there were fewer contenders. The Amiga was rapidly heading toward obsolescence. The last new machine to come out was the Amiga 1200, and that had come out in 1992. So a couple of former Gateway employees were able to put together a new company called Amino Development, and they got some investors, and they purchased the non-patent technologies of Amiga. Then they changed their company name to Amiga Technologies, later Amiga Incorporated. They had big plans, but apart from a game pack that could turn a PDA into an Amiga-compatible gaming system, 
it didn't really pan out. The dot-com crash dealt another huge blow. The company partnered with some manufacturing facilities to make some motherboards, and there was a software developer called Hyperion Entertainment out of Belgium, I believe it was, that was designed to, uh, or designated to make the next generation of the Amiga operating system, Amiga OS 4. But the whole system never really quite coalesced. Amiga Incorporated existed at least in name until 2016. But then the owner did not renew the copyright on the name, and now that's essentially gone as well. You can get hold of some of those motherboards, and the Amiga OS 4.0 still exists. But a lot of people say that Amiga is kind of stuck in time now because there's just not enough development behind it. So there's not going to be any advance in Amiga technology. You could use an emulator and play old Amiga games, but no new ones are going to be developed most likely. Or if they are developed, they're going to have to exist on that older architecture because there's no one there to develop the next generation. So it's pretty sad. It was a tough, tough story. I mean, it was one of those things that started off so promising back in the early 80s, uh, but multiple setbacks plagued Amiga throughout its history from the video game crash of 1983 to Commodore declaring bankruptcy in 94 to this essential fizzling out in 2016. Although you could argue that the company was long gone before that anyway. Maybe one day we'll see a reemergence of the Amiga brand in a serious way. Um, maybe it will be able to, to hold true to Jay Miner's vision when he first founded the company back in the early 80s. But for now... That is the end of the Amiga story and the end of this series of episodes. If you guys have any suggestions for future topics, whether it's a company, a technology, someone in tech, maybe there's someone you want me to interview, send me a message. Let me know. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to check out the merchandise over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. I know you've always wanted a Tech Stuff t-shirt. Can't blame you. They look awesome. I love mine. I actually bought two of them. And that's not that's not an exaggeration. I actually bought them. Uh, but go check those out. Every purchase you make helps the show out a little bit. I've helped the show. Now you can too. And don't forget, you can follow us over on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 